Hi everyone and welcome to Radically Normal. This is Michael and I'm here with Andre. On this episode, we discuss five misconstrued verses, hoping to shed some historical context and light on many verses you may have heard before, but that were misused. And we hope you enjoy the discussion. Hey everybody, welcome to Radically Normal. Thanks for tuning in today. Today we're going to talk about misconstrued verses. We have five of them to discuss. But first, if you haven't already, please go follow our Instagram account, Radically Normal Pod, just where you can get weekly updates on episodes and perhaps engage with other listeners as well. Also, on the very last Thursday episode, sometime in August for this season, we're going to do a Q&A. So please send Q&A questions in, whether to our email address or to the Instagram, or if you're a friend and you have one of our numbers, just text us. But Regardless, send in Q&A questions so we can get that on the road as well. And if uh, you like the podcast, be sure to leave a rating or review, and it'll increase uh, how many people can see the podcast when they go on to Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Podcasts, whatever you listen to to Radically Normal on. I didn't think ratings or reviews were that important. I kind of rolled my eyes when other podcasters used to say that. But now as somebody who does run a podcast, I can say it's actually important. So uh, if you do enjoy the podcast, please go check it out, rate and review, subscribe, whatever best fits your interest. So should we hop in? Yeah, for sure. Maybe we should just uh, say which five verses we're going to talk about so everyone's kind of on the same page. Yeah, so just a few things real quick. We're going to do five verses, Second Chronicles 7.14, Jeremiah 29.11, Matthew 7.1, 1 Corinthians 10.13, and Philippians 4.13. Our discussion is going to be in the order in which the verses appear in the Bible when you open it. Also, just another thing, I Andre and I... depends which side of the Bible you open it from, though. Okay, we're assuming you open from Genesis chapter 1, page 1. <laughs> Thanks, Andre. But another one, another thing we want to mention is that if you listen and you feel like you've misused a verse, don't feel judged or anything. We are just here to shed a light on God's Word, and we've definitely misused these verses in the past as well, so we just hope we can illuminate their true meaning, perhaps, and just have a fruitful discussion on these verses. Yeah, I've definitely misused some of these verses. One of these specifically has been going around a lot um, since like the beginning of uh, COVID and all that kind of stuff, and it's been used by a lot of people, and it's not really what, doesn't really mean what you think it means. So yeah, so we're going to jump into that verse that Andre is hinting at, as well as some verses that are reinterpreted in some sort of prosperity gospel sense. Um, And we hope you enjoy the discussion. So the first one we're going to talk about is 2 Chronicles 7.14. So this is located at the, in the first half of 2 Chronicles, which is in the historical books in the Old Testament. So if you open up your Bible, it'll be a bit closer to the front than it will be to the back comes right after first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first Chronicles. Page uh, 364 if you're looking in my Bible. And page 484 if you're in mine, so that wasn't that helpful. (laughs) But I'll just go ahead and read the verse. You've probably heard this or seen this on social media at some point, but second Chronicles... Especially in the last couple months. For sure. So second Chronicles 714 says... If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is the Lord speaking to Solomon in the night. So, do you just want to give a little context or do you want me to first? Um, I guess we should just like 
the format we're going to do for each of the verses is say how it's misinterpreted, then give some verses to talk about why that may be wrong, slash what verses might um, help us to understand the correct interpretation, which a lot of times is just the verses directly before it and directly after it, plus a little bit of history or a little bit of context, which I know Mike is going to love to give to us. But hey, basically, we've we've had some good feedback on a Mike's history lesson from episode one, diving in, and two, just that people want to learn more about the historical lens of the Bible. So I am looking forward to the history here. Okay, so basically, the misinterpretation is that a lot of people think or use this verse in the context of America or the U.S. Um, repenting, turning away from its sin, and that then God will restore this land, which that isn't the correct interpretation. It has nothing to do with the U.S., and quoting it in that way um, can lead to a, like a misunderstanding of what's actually going on in the context of this verse and in the context of what's going on in the Bible at this point. Right, so just to give some context and expand on the misconception, First of all, Second Chronicles 7 would have been written to the people who were coming home from exile after being dominated by a foreign power. They needed to be pointed back to Solomon's kingship, which is what this chapter is about. And Solomon was the king who built the house of the Lord after David asked God if he could build it. And then God told David, no, your son is going to build the house of the Lord, the temple for me. If you've been following along in Nehemiah, We've been discussing the second temple, which was built in Ezra, after the first temple, the one built by Solomon, was wrecked down. And when in this verse, when the people hear, my people who are called by my name, this would remind them back uh, of the Abrahamic covenant made in Genesis. So if that's primarily in Genesis 12 through 17, but if I just read a couple verses from Genesis 17, God says in verse 7 through 8, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So this is the context in which these people are hearing the verse. And the importance of this verse is that it serves as a reminder to the people of God that exile and defeat did not change their identity and that God still had a future for them. The misconception is that the people here is Americans now, and the land is American soil. This creates some sort of prosperity gospel applied to the United States with blessing attached to it. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ, as we learn in 2 Corinthians 1. And as a result of that, it's not that God is going to heal this land if our leaders and our country turn and repent. Do you have something to add on that? I know you were talking about how it is true that God will heal if we repent, but it's not about our soil. Yeah, so something I found really interesting was that in Second Chronicles 6.26, basically very similar words are used. The only difference is that in the middle, in, in between two commas, it says, your people Israel, which kind of just like completely contextualizes who it's talking to, which isn't America, the U.S., etc. You know, the sad part about this, which Michael was talking about, is that the Part about this verse, which should be looked at and does apply to like all believers, is that it says that if you do humble yourself, pray, repent, that then God will forgive your sins. Okay, that is true. That part is true. The part that's misconstrued is heal their land and attributing that to the U.S. In First John one nine, basically it, there's very similar speech used about how if we confess our sins, 
he is faithful and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the part about repenting and God forgiving you, that part is all good and true. And that's the part that we should focus on. And we should focus on how our blessings are found in Christ. Right. So if you read Philippians 3, we're going to spend a little bit more time in Philippians later, trust me. But if you read Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. So usually what happens in this verse is we let our citizenship or our living in America be the theological lens through which we interpret this rather than the citizenship in heaven that Paul makes clear. What happens in the New Covenant Church, which we'll have an episode on later at some point, is that Jesus himself becomes the true Israel who ushers in the church. In Exodus 19, God talks about how his people will be a prized possession among the nations. But in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the light. So we see that the church is God's royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, fulfilling or mirroring or echoing this Exodus 19 talk from, from God to the people of Israel. And through Christ, the church becomes the Israel of God, mentioned in Galatians 6, where Paul says, As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God, referring not to Old Testament Israel, but uh, speaking to the fulfillment of Israel in the church, not the not the nation of Israel, but the spiritual Israel, those that were faithful and saved by grace through faith. So I think what you're trying to say is that the bad part about some of these misconceptions for all five of these is that focusing too much on the, um, the misconception takes away from some of the beauty of what's actually being said there. For that sure. We can actually apply to ourselves and that at least in these Old Testament uh examples point directly to Christ. Exactly. So the promises of Yahweh, as seen here in the Old Testament, don't find fulfillment in America. They come through Christ and see promises, hope, and glory that are going to usher in eternal presence and reign by God, that we experience a new heaven and new earth, that these promises don't just find landing point today, but they find landing point in eternity through Jesus Christ. And I guess the good thing about that is that in the context of what's going on in Second Chronicles, the people are being punished because of their sins and they're, they're in exile and God's giving them a way for restoration through prayer and repentance. Right. So you, so sometimes you'll hear maybe a prosperity gospel preacher or somebody say something that makes it clearly sound as though the coronavirus could be God's judgment on the world. The scripture does not make that point clear. Paul does make clear that it is possible that some people get illnesses because of their sin. However, it is completely unlikely that God is ushering in a virus for judgment and waiting for lands such as America to repent so that he would heal their land of a virus or of immorality or anything else. Yeah. So, I don't know, do you have any other verses? I don't have any more verses from that. Just if you're looking to learn more, there is a bunch of dispute on how Israel is to be interpreted and how we should look at that today. And maybe later on we'll have an episode about covenantalism versus dispensationalism. You do typically hear this interpretation more from dispensational-leaning camps. However, we just want to we just want to emphasize that regardless of the 
interpretational lens, we're not to see America as a replacement for Israel as God's chosen people. The church is God's chosen people. We have a wondrous Savior, Jesus Christ, who is ushering in an unfolding plan of redemption for all of time. And one day we could see the fulfillment of those promises. The beautiful part, as Andre said in Second Chronicles 7, is that if anyone hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, humbles themselves before God, repents and prays of their sin, then they will be saved and get to experience those promises in Christ. And the misconception of Second Chronicles 7, 14 is very similar to our next verse, which is sometimes used in the wrong way, which is Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. Right. So the misconception in Jeremiah 29, 11 is a prosperity gospel, false hope interpretation, basically that God has favor on your plans in your life. So yes, some people use it in a time of suffering, maybe to say, God still has hope for me. But usually it's it's used more in the sense of God has these plans that probably line up with my dreams and he's going to establish favor and make me prosperous. God's words about prosperity here have nothing to do with the realization of our American dream, you could say. So do you want to jump into perhaps correctly interpreting the verse? I mean, first we should probably just read it. Uh, so For sure, go ahead. Okay, so starting verse 11. <laughs> Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your, all your heart. Right, so the context here for Jeremiah. Jeremiah is an Israelite priest. God has called him as a prophet to warn Israel of God's judgment to come through Babylon. Remember that the people, if you've been following along in Nehemiah, the people that have returned to Jerusalem in Ezra and Nehemiah are the people who have returned from that exile in Babylon and the Babylonians were crushed from were crushed by Persia as God's judgment on Babylon fell. So then, something I found interesting was that there was actually uh, someone who was, I guess, like going around telling everyone that within like two years, they would be like out of exile and then basically God, out of anger, goes, like, I know the plan that I have for Israel. Don't listen to this false prophet. And you should basically, like, listen to what I have said. And, like, basically he's giving them a roadmap to how their restoration is going to look like. Right, exactly. So what's happening here, just as Andre said, is there had been false prophets who had said more favorable or likable words than Jeremiah. Because they'd said that the exile would be shorter. Jeremiah said it would be 70 years. So just as we today might like words that interpret God's promises to us in a way that's favorable or likable, or we just like to hear people's words that seem favorable to our own condition. These people were misled by false prophets, and therefore Jeremiah was basically shunned and he was rejected by Israel's leaders. So if you just read the verse right before 29, 11, verse 10 says, for thus says the Lord, when, se when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So this is about the restoration of Israel in the context of the people potentially thinking that the power of Yahweh had been taken away from Judah. And he actually talks about how the restoration is going to come through the exiles. So rather than using this verse to say, God is going to fulfill my dreams, Jeremiah, the book is and the prophet, is all about God messing up his people's plans and him having a plan of restoration that didn't look as they would expect. And then what, what we can take away is that God is giving us hope. He is giving us joy. 
Um, he has a future for us in Christ. All those things are true, but that does not mean that we should think that because we are saved, that we will just have a life full of the American dream and all of our hopes and aspirations will just be fulfilled and that we won't face any hardships because of that. Because just because Jeremiah 29 says that uh, the Lord has plans for welfare, not for evil, and to give you a good future, that does not mean that you're just going to have like live a just a cushy life just because you're a Christian. Right. So Galatians 3 here is helpful understanding the favor or the blessing that comes through the seed of Abraham that God provides and how we see the offspring fulfillment in Christ. But if we truly understand, just like in the previous verse that we discussed, how God brings blessing through the seed of Abraham and how in Christ we find these promises to be true for us, we can understand that when God is talking about plans for welfare and not for evil to give future and a hope. Our ultimate future and hope is not in God providing American prosperity or in Western prosperity. It's in God ushering in his promises about eternity through Christ, which we've already seen partially, but partially which still have to be fulfilled. Yeah. And then in Hebrews, it even talks about how people had died without receiving the promises which basically means that those are the people who were exiled in a generation which didn't get to go to the promised land, which basically, as they're like looking back to what happened in the Old Testament, even they're acknowledging that that basically like this is not what it means, how people use it today. In the previous verse we discussed, I mentioned 1 Peter 2.9. Now, just a verse or two later in 2.11, Peter calls the church sojourners and exiles. So we're also strangers and exiles, just like these people. And it feels sometimes like maybe we're left to dead like the exiles felt. Their dreams and hopes were shattered. But we have a God who fulfills his covenant promises, and he raised Christ from the dead. So we have hope in being co-heirs with Christ, where the ultimate hope of restoration is actually a new heaven and new earth. That's good. Uh, so the next uh, verse we're going to look at is Matthew 7, 1. So you want to go ahead and read that one before we go through the misconception? I will. So the verse says... And actually, maybe as we get into it, we'll read down later. But the first verse says, Matthew 7, 1, is judge not that you be not judged. So what's the misconception? So I think a lot of people use this verse saying, uh, don't judge other people or else like God's going to judge you or, or, harshly maybe, or other people are going to judge you. They're looking at it from that lens. Now, in the context of the rest of the Old Testament, I mean, the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament, there's a lot of things that don't really support that. And I think that what's really going on here is that Jesus is saying, don't condemn others. Um, he's specifically talking to the Pharisees who are condemning others. And Well, he's speaking in light of the Pharisees. Yeah, he's okay. So speaking in light of the Pharisees who are condemning others without um, looking at looking at their own sins and looking at their own mistakes and want to just punish other people for their sins. If you look at it in that context then basically, yes, we shouldn't condemn others for their sin, um, but we should point them out to others, especially believers, um, so that we can like have um, restoration. And I guess like there's a lot of supporting verses that will show us that um, we should point out to believers when they're making mistakes and like stuck in their sins. Right. So just later in Matthew, in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus talks a bit about verses that usually pertain to church discipline and how you can call out a brother or sister who's walking in sin and how you can restore them to holiness. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 7, we have Paul writing about 
purifying the church of evil. And if you just understand or think about the Old Testament and New Testament emphasis on the purity of God's people, thinking about the Levitical law and other commandments ushered out in Exodus, just thinking about those things, the purity among God's people can often be achieved by the Holy Spirit using you or people around you in community with accountability, not to judge in the way that we think of being condemning or judgmental, but in a way that holds people accountable, calls them out for their sin so that they can walk in a higher level of practical holiness in Christ and therefore further glorify God. Another verse that I saw was uh, James 5, 19, 19 through 20, which basically says, my brothers, if any one among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Okay, that to me basically shows that there is some merit to pointing out to people um, when they're making a mistake and you see it. You have to have like some proper judgment to be able to do that. If you just if your mentality is just like, oh, I'm not going to judge anyone, then like that's not the correct mentality that you should have. But that doesn't mean that we should be self righteous in our like in our pointing out to people when they're making a mistake because that's not what we should do right so going off the idea of self-righteousness that's basically what jesus is warning against in matthew 7 so just to read the couple verses after he says starting in verse 2 for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we should be humbled by our own sin to care most about our own sin. So I've heard a pastor say before, I forget who it was, say we should be experts in our own sin before we're experts in other people's sin, but so often it's the opposite of that. And it's not that we want to ignore other people's sin. It's just that Jesus is calling people to a humility about their own sin. And then throughout the scriptures, Jesus, Paul, Moses, and God through all of them is essentially just calling people to purity and humility. We do just want to emphasize that if you are attempting to hold people accountable in their sin, it should be done with grace and truth. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes about speaking the truth in love and we do want to emphasize that, you know, we want to be doing these things in humility and in love. But at the same time, Jesus is emphasizing in Matthew 18 and in other texts that we do want to hold people accountable and we do want to seek the purity of God's people. And then I guess earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 6, it's also talked about like having mercy. So what are your views on like making judgments on people who are believers versus people who aren't believers? Right. So... I don't remember the exact verse, but I, I want to say Paul talks about do not judge those outside the church without the Holy Spirit, but there is a sense in which it's essential that we have judgment within the church. Like Andre said, and he quoted from James 5, it can help brothers that are potentially drifting in the faith, falling away from the faith, brothers and sisters. And then second, having mercy and having love. Holding people accountable is one of the best ways you can do that because if being obedient will bring them the most joy possible in their life and it will glorify God the most, then it's actually the most loving thing to help people walk out of their sin and begin to seek the things that are above, as uh, Paul writes in Colossians 3. So 
having that judgment, discernment, accountability is essential in the church. And then as it pertains to outside the church, we want to be careful that we're not proclaiming solely a message of judgment, but that we're also proclaiming a a message of mercy. So this morning I was reading in John chapter 7 and 8, and Jesus is saying that they will die in their sin unless they come to him who is the Messiah and who would give them everlasting life. And that's in the context of him just proclaiming that he's the bread of life and he's the fulfillment of the rock of the living water in Moses' time. So we want to proclaim that people are dead in their sin and will face judgment, but we want to do that with mercy and we want to point to the hope of the gospel in Jesus. Yeah, one thing I've just been thinking about recently is that I just don't want anyone to take away that we should have a spirit of judgment or be self-righteous to people who aren't believers, like aren't don't go to church that kind of thing because we don't want to just like scare people away and then not want them to come to church, not want them to like reconcile and not want them to come to the Lord or seek a relationship with Jesus just because like us as Christians are being too self-righteous. Just something that's like very easy for the modern church to like fall into. And that I've like heard a lot of sermons about pastors saying like, we don't want to do that. We don't want to just push people away and that kind of thing. Right. I think, I think you made a good point about self-righteousness just because when we do that, I think we forget that we didn't save ourselves. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you've been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not a result of your own works, so that no one may boast. So we can't boast or feel some sense of self-righteousness. We've been brought from death to life, transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. And as a result of that, we have to walk in a way that's consistent with how Jesus walked and continues to reign. Awesome. Now we got the next two. Maybe they're going to go a little bit faster, but they're also two that are quoted significantly. I can't wait. (laughs) All throughout, like you see them everywhere. So the first one's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Okay, I'll go ahead and read that. So here, just for some context, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, essentially had just fallen into a bunch of problems. And essentially you could just think, They would not have gotten a good grade if you were grading churches on holiness or walking uprightly in the faith, kind of a train wreck of a church. And now we get to 1 Corinthians 10. So you might be familiar with 1 Corinthians because of the discussion of the spiritual gifts later in this book, or we already talked about purity in the church earlier, the discussion of marriage a little bit earlier. But here in chapter 10, we get to a great passage that's actually about idolatry. So the heading in my ESV Bible is warning against idolatry for chapter 10. And then I'll just read verse 13, but we're going to spend some time talking about the context before it. So Paul writes in verse 13, inspired by the Holy Spirit, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the way people most often take that is God won't give you more than you can handle. Andre, what do you think about that? Um, So after looking into a lot of other verses and even just reading from the start of chapter 10, I think that that's definitely a misconception. Looking at it in the context of idolatry and temptation, I think it is valid that God will give you a way of escape from your temptation. If you're just looking at it from handling anything from a physical sense, a financial sense, anything along those lines, 
it's not just saying that you're just going to always have a way out and it's just going to be an easy breezy life because God's going to give you a way out and allow you to handle it. Right. So I think there's almost two misconceptions. One is just that the passage even isn't about trial and suffering. So if you look up and you read the verses before, I don't want to spend time reading all 12 verses before it, but talks about in the first couple, Moses and the wanderings in the desert and how God was not pleased with most of them. And then how Paul writes in verse six, these things took place as examples for us that we might des- we might not desire evil as they did. And then he talks about idolatry in the church. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. That's verse 11. So the context is people in the past in the church or in Israel have fallen into idolatry and sin. So this verse isn't about their trials. It's about their temptation and their idolatry. That's why it says no temptation is overtaking that's not common to man, saying every temptation you face it's not just you. There's somebody else that's struggling with that. There's somebody else that has struggled with that. There's somebody else that sinned that same way. That's why in Hebrews, the author says that Jesus is the high priest who's been tempted in every way as we have been because temptation is common to man. No temptation can overtake you. And it says God will provide the way of escape. So God will provide through the Holy Spirit, through your faith, through perhaps even accountability, allow you to face that temptation in a way that is faithful and allows the Holy Spirit to move through you. So the second problem is that it's not even right, I don't think, to say that God won't give you more than you can handle in terms of trial and suffering. Why do you think that is? Definitely not. And one thing that we found interesting uh, before we started recording this episode was that the proof that that's not what it's saying comes from like Paul himself in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, basically he describes he's describing like the, the the trials and what they're going through and basically says we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. Like, I just don't think that Paul would contradict himself just one book of the Bible later. Right. Exactly. So Paul says in, in second Corinthians one, eight through nine, how they were burdened beyond their strength. And then that burden was so that they would rely on in verse nine, he says, but on God who raises the dead. So he's saying we were burdened beyond our ability to withstand it. So it's not, even if chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians was about trial and suffering or whatever's going on in your life, it would actually be that God will give you more than you can handle. And that's not a message of no hope or bad news for you today. I, I, in fact, encourage or help or hope that if you're listening and you think about this verse, you'll just see that one, sin is the worst possible thing in our life. It has effects on ourselves, our relationship with the Lord, and corporately it has effects on family members, the church, and other people. And so there's no temptation that we're facing that we can't be empowered by the Holy Spirit to overcome. And then second, If things feel like they're beyond your ability to endure, which that verse isn't actually talking about, but if if things feel beyond your ability to endure, that's okay because God has given you that so that you would rely on him who raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. And one interesting thing to me is if you just look to James, at the beginning of James it says that we'll face trials of many kinds and that that will build perseverance. So facing trials is a good thing in the context of that. And then also at the end of James chapter one, it says that uh, we will be tempted not by God. It is him who gives us the way out from death. So basically we can't just think that, oh, 
we're never going to be tempted or never going to face any trials that um, is more than we can handle because there's a lot of things in the rest of scripture that points to quite the opposite. Exactly. And just to go off of what Andre is saying about the end of James 1, it's clear that God tests us and that produces steadfastness, but Satan is the one who is the deceiver, the one that is tempting us. And we know from Paul's welcoming words in 1 Corinthians 10 that we just read that via the Holy Spirit and the ability of the church through Christ, we can overcome temptation and idolatry. And that's what Paul intends for us to get out of that verse. So that pretty much just leaves the perhaps most infamous verse. And as I was preparing for this, I had another friend call me and he said, what are you doing? I said, preparing for our podcast episode. And he said, oh, what's it on? I said, misconstrued verses. And he said, oh, are you talking about Philippians 4.13? And I said, yep. And here we are now. So what do you got? Philippians 4.13, probably one of the most famous verses. A lot of people know it. And a lot of times it's used in not the correct way, but basically I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And it's very interesting because at Passion, Tim Tebow used this verse and I was just crossing my fingers, hoping he'd use it the right way and he ended up doing it the right way. And then in my notes, I wrote, uh, Tim Tebow correctly uses Philippians 4.13. Michael looks at it and just dies laughing. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. It was really funny in the moment. And there's a lot of verses for proper interpretation that we've been giving as we go along, just helping scripture interpret scripture. But I actually think the most important verses to understand 4.13 is the three verses before it. So I'm just going to read those straight through. So starting in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And just one thing to keep in mind is this is almost certainly written while Paul is imprisoned. So basically in the context of having a difficult life, facing persecution, um, Paul is saying the only thing he needs is Jesus. So basically throw anything at him, he'll be able to endure it because it's worth it in the lens of him uh, spreading the name of Christ. Right. It's not that he's going to escape suffering. In fact, in the previous chapter in verse 10, he says that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, saying he understands the goodness of suffering. And in Acts 541, we see the apostles rejoice greatly because they were counted as worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's name. So there is a goodness to suffering that the apostles rejoiced about in the New Testament. But what's important here is that this is all in the context of Paul's imprisonment. You might remember the famous verse from chapter 1 in Philippians, to to live as Christ and to die as gain. But Paul here is just saying uh, that he has suffered greatly, that he has been imprisoned, that he has faced so many situations where he might be discontent, but he's realized the secret, which is to be content in every circumstance of how to face all situations and to still know that he has plenty in the sufficiency of Jesus. And therefore, despite the suffering, he can endure and do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And I guess if you just look at it in the context of, hey, I can do all things uh, through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, but if you just have that mentality and you just think, oh, I'm going to make it to the NBA because uh, I can do all things, or I'm going to invest all my money into the stock market 
and it, I'm going to become a millionaire because I can do all things. And if you just look at it from that lens, then you're just going to end up facing a lot of disappointment and maybe attribute that to God letting you down just because you might be having some false conceptions or false notions of what's actually going on with Paul and what is actually trying to be said here and what the church and what Christians should actually take from this. Right. This mean, this verse probably meant so much to Paul just that Philippians emphasizes the sufficiency of Jesus for all needs for all peoples, that we have a citizen a citizenship in heaven that supersedes all other allegiances and that we can stay steadfast in Christ. And he points out the faithfulness of other people, like Epaphroditus in chapter 2 talks about walking without grumbling, that we might walk in the light and be a light. And here, just thinking about the sufficiency of Christ, like Andre said, we if we misuse this verse, it could lead to having false hopes and false dreams and false thoughts about God. But instead, we can take Paul's true meaning and think that if we face persecution for the name of Christ or if we're going through suffering, it doesn't matter because the abundance, the only thing that matters is that we cling tight to Jesus. Yeah, so basically, instead of thinking that this verse is saying that we're going to have a good and plentiful life, what it's really saying is that we'll be able to endure hardships um, and persecution and um, difficult lives because our joy is found in Christ. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely just right before this, Paul talks about how there beyond anything that he's had before his, his stature and his value and his exaltation amongst the peoples as one of the higher Jewish leaders, he says, none of that matters because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And this theme is evident here too doesn't matter any of the situations he's facing. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. So it's about, I would say, enduring, not achieving. Exactly. And I guess that's all for our misinterpreted verses. Uh, we kind of came up with this idea on the fly just because we were talking about it, joking about it a little bit, and we thought it'd be a cool thing to talk about that people might find interesting. Um, but basically, if anyone who's listening has an idea of a topic which would be interesting or something you'd like us to discuss, or you'd like to, to hear um, Mike give some context, some history for, anything along those lines. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, if, you e- if you email us what that is, uh, we'd definitely consider it. For sure. Thanks for tuning in again to Radically Normal. We hope we shed some light, some context on these verses. We hope that it helps you better understand the story of Scripture. It's kind of why we've been spending time in Nehemiah as well. So thanks for tuning in, and we just pray that everybody has a great day. And tune in next Monday, and I hope you guys enjoy this discussion. 